It's now been a year since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the one that started in February 2022. That should not be confused with the original invasion that goes back to 2014, when Moscow annexed Crimea and began its armed intervention in the Donbass. Rather than attempt some kind of all-encompassing summary of every horror that has unfolded in the last year, or try to speculate about the grand geopolitics behind this bloody conflict, what I'm going to do here is focus on a single story that seems to get bigger as the war drags on, especially lately. So let's talk, again, admittedly, about Yevgeny Prigozhin, specifically the Wagner Group Mercenary Company. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Last year in November, I interviewed a bunch of journalists, too many journalists, you might say, and asked them broad questions about Yevgeny Prigozhin, this tough guy figure who is constantly in news headlines, particularly in Russia, where he controls a whole media empire of phony news websites and telegram channels, but also in the Western media, where it's now commonplace to speculate on whether he's a potential challenger to Putin or some kind of upstart social climber who's essentially cruising for a bruising by yapping too loudly about the defense ministry's supposed shortcomings. This week, he's made headlines again by feuding ever more loudly with Russia's military leadership, even accusing the defense minister and the chief of the general staff of treason. In all of these complaints, he argues that the military isn't supplying Wagner forces with enough ammunition in Bakhmut, leading to avoidable losses and delaying the capture of the city, he says. On February 22nd, he actually released a photograph, a graphic image, showing dozens of dead bodies, all Wagner mercenaries who were allegedly killed in a single day. Prigozhin says he has the documents to prove that the defense ministry is undersupplying Wagner Group, and he says he's prepared to take the matter to federal prosecutors. The defense ministry, meanwhile, denies the allegations and warns that such claims only undermine the chain of command and benefit Russia's enemies. Before getting to today's show, I'll take a few seconds to remind listeners that support from Medusa's international audience is more important today than ever, now that the Russian authorities have designated Medusa as an undesirable organization, outlawing our reporting on the grounds that it poses a threat to the foundations of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. In other words, everything we do now, our investigative reports, our newsletters, our posts on social media, even our podcasts, it's all a crime now inside of Russia. Medusa will continue to report events to our readers, millions of whom are still in Russia. We will not submit to this attempted censorship. Now more than ever, your contributions sustain our work, and we need your help also in just putting out the word about our crowdfunding campaign. Okay, so let's get back to this week's show. Prigozhin is a tough guy. It's tough explaining exactly who he is in Russian elite politics. The same can be said about Wagner Group, or Wagner Group, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It's typically identified as a private military company, but nobody doubts that this entity would be nothing on the battlefield without Russia's actual military. So where does that leave us? For insights about how we ought to talk about Wagner Group in the first place, I turn to Candice Rondeau, a professor at the Malikan Center for Russian, Eurasian, and East European Studies and the Center on the Future of War at Arizona State University. She also directs the Future Frontlines program at New America where she and her colleagues have just published a whole series of articles all about Wagner Group, a.k.a. Putin's ghost army. Definitely important to define terms when talking about a policy issue 
that involves violent actors like the Wagner Group. It's really important, particularly, I think, for Ukraine, for the U.S., for NATO countries to really define terms. And I guess the challenge has always been that it's it's more brand than company, right? And the suspected owner, operator, Yevgeny Prigozhin, also denied any knowledge of the Wagner Group's activities or operations. Mm-hmm. Obviously, things have changed. But I think that that change is really telling. And I think in that change, that shift where Prigozhin has become more prominent and public about his role with the Wagner Group, that should tell us, and I think it does tell us, that there's something more than meets the eye here, right? That in many ways, the Wagner Group is part psychological operation, part paramilitary cartel, and part deception operation. And so that's what has made it so difficult to, to talk about it and define it. But at the end of the day, I think the U.S. sanctions recently labeling the Wagner Group a transnational organized crime group. Mm-hmm. That's probably about as close as we can get right now until more investigation is done in terms of like how the command structure works. One of Wagner's standout features, if that's the way to describe it, is the group's brutality. Its combatants are notorious for slaughtering civilians, executing their own deserters, and recruiting violent offenders from prisons inside Russia. In an article published last December in Russian Analytical Digest, Dr. Andreas Heinemann-Gruder, who teaches political science at the University of Bonn in Germany, wrote that Russia's mercenaries practice what he calls exterminatory warfare. I asked him what that means. The Wagner Group is similar to the SS troops as they were used by the Nazis during World War II. So they are a separate structure for exterminatory purposes. They are action groups that fulfill certain military tasks the regular armed forces can't fulfill. And their purpose in sub-Saharan African countries is to liquidate insurgents they destroy whole villages, for example, in Mali or in the Central African Republic. They did the same also in Syria. And the strategies of, you know, killing people were originally developed in the two Chechen wars. And so what we are currently seeing is a professionalization of this killing spree On the other hand, what's new is that, you know, part of this professionalism is undermined by the recruitment of inmates from prisons who are not professionals. Wagner Group's recruitment of inmates is old news, both in the sense that it's been reported everywhere for months already, and also because Russia's prison pipeline has apparently been shut off for Yevgeny Prigozhin who recently said that he's done offering contracts to convicts, for now at least. Still, prisoners in arms have been a major feature of Wagner Group's public image. They've factored large in Prigozhin's publicity work, and Bellingcat's Eric Toller recently wrote an article about how these men are being received back home when they return as casualties of the war. Like a lot of local governors and stuff are like not so hot on giving burials with honors to a lot of these guys because they're like rapists and murderers, <laughs> like the worst, you know, the worst of the worst. And Prigozhin is pushing hard for this. So there's kind of this big push from Prigozhin himself as kind of this marketing ploy of getting people to sign up of, 
if you sign up for this, you'll, you know, not only live with honor, you'll get a pardon right after five or six months, but you'll theoretically die with honor too. You'll go in the alleys, you know, the Elea Guroyev or whatever, right? The Alley of Heroes, next to these World War II veterans and stuff. Right. Um, <laughs> and for some of them, it happens. I mean, mostly the comments I've been seeing in like the reporting on it is mostly like, People don't really have problems with the inmates fighting. People are more worried about the eventual pardons for the people who do survive and about being allowed back into society. Because that's the other part of this. A lot of these people are dying because a lot of them are being sent to, you know, Bakhmut, which is just, you know, a meat grinder. Yeah. But, you know, how many of these people are actually going to make it to the six month period and actually get released, which is an open question, too, because Prigozhin has promised five or six months. It's like it's it's like the running man, right? If you survive, then then you make it. But the cards are stacked against you and that you may survive and not make it because there have also been reports about people having their contracts extended involuntarily. Right. So like made six months. Oh, look at this. You get an extra three months, um, whether you like it or not. Right. So. How many of them will actually, of these, you know, rapists and murderers and thieves and all that, will actually get the pardon and go back and try to reintegrate in society? Some of them will, right? Because there have been some very public ceremonial pardons that Prigozhin has run. Yeah. But I think that these are probably more ceremonial than than, than real. And people just may keep getting their contracts extended until they, you know, until they, until Bakhmut is over, right? And it's really, the six month is a very soft, I guess you could say, um, um, target for a lot of these people. So we haven't really seen these mass parties, except for like a few isolated cases, haven't really happened yet. So we haven't seen the societal civil response yet to what, you know, when these people start reoffending, assuming they do. I don't want to be like too, <laughs> too, <laughs> I, reformed, I, make, yeah. I don't want to make it seem like I'm like pro, uh, pro like a pro Keep prison in jail advocate. forever. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I'm not, I'm like a uh, carceral advocate or whatever, or whatever. Yeah. But like, you know, inevitably some people will reoffend just because you know, there's based on statistics of how many people are getting it's tens of thousands, supposedly, of these people are getting released. At least some of them will survive and get a pardon. So that that goes to see about how people will respond for the pers- first person who reoffends, like in a very grand, you know, right. noteworthy way. I think until August, September last year, there were more seasoned fighters, so mercenaries who had. Uh, fighting experience gained already in other post-Soviet wars including Chechnya, but also in Georgia, in Moldova. Some of them had actually also already fought former Yugoslavia. So they recruited also professional mercenaries from other countries. So we have foreigners also serving in the Wagner Group, a couple of right-wing extremists and even Nazis. But in order to increase their power, they recruited these inmates or ragtag criminal people, but in the end, it didn't work out. So Wagner has basically to return to its original modus operandi because it undermines their internal cohesion. It leads to self-destruction as as a suicidal for the combatants. And therefore, I think this attempt to increase their fighting power through recruitment of criminals is in the end counterproductive for the Wagner Group. You know, there was recently an announcement, if I'm not mistaken, from the Pedagogian's press people saying that they're not doing the prison recruiting anymore. And it's, it came kind of, it seems sudden because up until that moment, Pedagogian was appearing in, you know, promotional sort of content that was, seemed like he was still trying to win the hearts of inmates and, you know, boosting recruitment. And there had been apparently like kind of a second round of recruiters going around to regional prisons and, and making the same pitch all over again, but with, with less success, it seems. 
Is it your reading that Wagner came to this conclusion themselves, like the decision makers within the mercenary company and said, this isn't working, cohesion is collapsing? Or was it the defense ministry saying, stop doing this, we don't like it anymore? Or was it the prisons saying, stop doing it? Or do you have, in terms of like the information available, what kind of signs are you seeing in terms of how to read why these decisions were reached? I think the popularity of uh, being recruited to Wagner in exchange for, you know, being released from the prison, the calculus of the inmates changed because roughly 70% of the inmates uh, who were recruited were actually killed in the first row. And so there was a division of labor also inside Wagner that the inmates were saying as a first wave when they fought, for example, in Bakhmut or in Solidar. So the second and third wave of the fighters were, were the more professional ones, but the recruited criminals were basically sent into a kind of meat grinder. Yeah. So therefore it became less, less popular. And I think we have this competition between the different, you know, security organs in Russia from the outset of this war. So we we had the frictions between the military intelligence, GRU, and on the other hand, the FSB, and then the regular armed forces. And then additionally, the Wagner Group and a couple of maybe additional even private military companies. And then the Kadyrovce from, from Chechnya. So there is a constant competition between different, you know, security or violence providers. And everybody wants to, you know, cash in the spoils uh, from the weakness of the other side. So it's a constant infighting between these different security or violence providers. And I don't think that there is, there is an end to this. This will still proceed. So it's not, it's not a monolithic structure. It's rather a pluralistic structure. And that makes it actually instrumental and favorable for Putin because he can constantly play one of the actors against another. Why do you think that Russia is using Wagner mercenaries in Ukraine specifically? I mean, it, it's, it makes sense to me that they would resort to this kind of shadowy, semi-official, semi-private mercenary group for actions where it is not officially conducting combat operations. But in Ukraine, you know, they're at war, they've got their army there. Why even turn to Wagner at all for, for doing anything? This kind of fighting is also dangerous for the discipline and for the morale in the, in the army. So you have a shock troop or a killer troop that is willing to take more risks. So you, then also the victims of the Wagner group could be, you know, hidden because this is not something you have to sell to the public. So the victims of the Wagner group are publicly invisible inside Russia because they are buried either close to the front line, their relatives are not going to stand up in the regions or in cities and to demonstrate against them. So in that sense, it's uh, a way of keeping, let's say, the social costs of the war at a lower level for Putin than if he would use the regular army. The willingness to let them die reduces the power of the Ukrainians tremendously because you have street fighting, you have 
fighting for every building. And that reduces to a much larger extent than before the recruitment of Wagner, the death rate of the Ukrainians. So there is a military benefit in even letting more own people die, but Ukrainians are decimated as a result of the fights around Bakhmut and Solidar and other cities. So in that sense, you have a military benefit in using the Wagner group. I think given also, you know, the limits of what they have in the military technology limits that, that the Russians demonstrated, Wagner was at least for a while seen as a potential game changer. And so if we can't, you know, match the weapons delivered since summer last year from the West, because they could shoot from long distance at the logistics, then it's a kind of, you know, asymmetric warfare because it's basically using guerrilla tactics against the Ukrainians who have this slight advantage with Western weaponry over the rather outdated or, you know, conventional weaponry of, of the Russians. So it's, it's a mix of reasons. And it's, of course, part also of the constant blame game. So, you know, there is high tension among all those who are charged to win the war. And at any given moment, somebody pops up and says, you know, I'm going to make good for the losses. As I record these interview segment transitions, I realize that a lot of my questions are obsessed with semantics. What should we call Prigozhin? How should we describe Wagner Group? You listen to enough of that, and you'll probably start asking, who the hell cares? While I sympathize with such frustrations, and many others, mind you, there is real policy significance here, as I learned from Candace Rondeau. From a policy standpoint, or even like a law enforcement standpoint, what's the difference between saying, okay, it's organized crime versus it's terrorists or something like this? Like, what's the, what are the consequences of using one term versus the other from like a authority standpoint? As you probably know, there's been just such a huge debate, uh, particularly of course, within Ukrainian security circles and sort of more generally, we've heard lots of officials from Ukraine asking for um, the United States and others to designate the Wagner Group a terrorist organization. And, you know, in U.S. law, there are some pretty big distinctions between that and transnational organized crime group. The first being that the way information about a terrorist group is handled by the U.S., um, tends to be super secretive, right? We have a history over the last 20 plus years with the global war on terror of designating individuals or organizations like Al-Qaeda or ISIS as terrorist organizations. And then you can't really see under the hood when it comes to the justification for naming them that, right? Like with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, it's obvious today, but it wasn't always the case, right? Uh, in the same way, the challenge is you want more people to know about the Wagner Group's operations if you don't want them, right? If you don't want to, to undercut your sanctions, right? So if you're an African businessman who happens to deal in oil or diamonds or gold, and maybe you have connections to uh, the local government, you know, it would be useful for you to know that this actor is actually sanctioned. And here are the reasons why. Um, the problem with the terrorism des designation is it's just too elastic. And it doesn't give the kind of power 
to law enforcement bodies around the world to pursue investigations into the Wagner Group's activities, which encompass a lot of things, by the way. I mean, we talk about them in the context of Ukraine a lot lately, but they're into arms smuggling, they're into gold and diamond smuggling. This is a huge criminal enterprise that has tentacles all over the world. I mean, as far away as Venezuela, Syria, Cuba, even <laughs> Nicaragua, people don't really talk about the Latin American quotient uh, of the Wagner Group's footprint, but that's largely because they don't really understand what it is. And essentially what it is, is an arm of the Russian state. It mostly supplies armed delivery boys for oil and gas and weapons to states that Russia has technical agreements with. So does that mean that by not designating them as a terrorist group, it's not necessarily that the government still could go harder against them. It's just a question of how to coordinate a kind of global effort to contain and possibly capture and punish some of these people. Is that, is that the kind of play here, I guess? That's one part of the play. I think the other piece is you want to preserve the capacity to explore the degree to which the Russian state has control over the Wagner Group operatives, right? So, of course, for years, Vladimir Putin has said, I don't know anything about them. They're not there. <laughs> maybe he's my friend, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Maybe he's not my friend. There's been a lot of kind of obfuscation. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if it turns out that there is a discernible pattern where there's a chain of command, a set of orders coming from Kremlin actors who are in the constitutional chain of command of the Russian military forces, under international law, the, the Russian state is responsible for whatever happens at knife point of the Wagner Group. So that's really important because when we're talking about international tribunals, which we have been talking about now more recently, we have the European Union coming out. Parliament asking for a special tribunal to be stood up. There's even now debates in the U.S. about whether or not that, that needs to happen because of Russia's war crimes and Ukraine being so egregious. And without doubt, the Wagner Group would center very prominently in any such effort. And so if you designate them a terrorist group, you're basically letting the Russian state off the hook mm. for what is clear support from the chain of command in the Kremlin. There was already a Russian presence in Tartu, in the naval base there, as early as 2012. And there was a plan to expand when the civil war became untenable and difficult. And a lot of those forces were associated with Moran Security Group, of course, which does have a sort of semi-legitimate purpose under Russian law. And suddenly... There were all these interdictions of shipments going to Syria, Russian shipments of weapons and helicopters. And that exposure, the public exposure, was costly. Who was it costly for? It was costly for SOGAS, the largest insurer, reinsurer for the shipment of goods and services. It was costly for Rostec. It was costly for all of Putin's inner circle, Chemizov, Timchenko, Kovalchak. All of them were paying a price for sanctions and interdiction of Russian shipments out to Syria and other places. And they needed a solution. And one of the best solutions was to disappear the Moran security group and low push forward the Wagner group. Does that mean that the closer you, we zero in on Wagner, the sooner we get to it becoming the next Moran security group and it'll, they'll just, it'll be the next thing? Like, I don't know, whoever the next mercenary's favorite musician is, like that'll be the new one. I think that's right. Although 
you know, one of the complications for rebranding now is that the the war in Ukraine has exposed a lot of the kind of inner workings of the Wagner Group. You know, for instance, we know there was a, a commander named Lotus, right, call sign Lotus, who was behind the Bakhmut offensive, and who was p- pictured alongside Yevgeny Prigozhin at the funeral of one of their more famous fighters. Funerals, as I mentioned earlier, are at the heart of Eric Toller's recent reporting for Bellingcat. He looked at the burials of three crime bosses from the 1990s who signed contracts with Wagner Group and left prison to fight in Ukraine, where they were more or less promptly killed. The receptions they got back home suggest that Prigozhin's promises of a hero's legacy and death aren't exactly trustworthy. By now, every major outlet has written kind of their Wagner inmate pieces. Like, so Medusa did one, BBC's done one, Reuters, like everyone's written kind of like, take a look at some of these, you know, some of these crazy guys getting out and fighting and trying to fight for their lives, right? And so my kind of take on it was like, it's kind of the 90s comes home again, right? The night, you know, the, the eternal recurrence of history with the 90s coming back. And I was kind of thinking like, okay, well, I want to see like how these people are perceived because you know, the 90s held a very particular kind of like mental space for the Russians, right? And the, my, there's no equivalent for it in the U.S. But like in my head, I imagine like these are like, you know, Sopranos, Mafia bosses, right? Robert <laughs> is, Baron era, right? Like no living memory. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? I was thinking like, but how, how are these guys going to be perceived when they die? And for the mo- I was kind of thinking like, you know, they're kind of to a degree like romanticized. You, people watch, you know, Brat and Brat 2 all the time and all that. And for the most part... It's kind of a whimper, right? So for two of these guys, uh, a guy named Maximenko and a guy named Bureshnik, when they died, it was kind of like, you know, that's that. Because they were from, you know, they're all from these provincial towns. One guy in Saratov, I think one guy out of Penza, and another guy out of um, in Tatarstan. And for the first two, Bureshnik and Maximenko, their funerals were just kind of like nothing. No one really showed up. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of like, there's like a little news blurb of like, you know, we're going to be saying goodbye, the you know, the Prashanya, right? We're going to be saying goodbye to him. It's a funeral. It'll be burial service. And that's kind of it. And that was Maximenko in particular. And Bereznik had, he had a service, like he was buried, like, you know, like kind of with honors and all that stuff in a church. But the only time, way I found out about it is because the military burial service was done by a place advertising their funeral services. So like this place, you know, got a, got a hustle, right? On their VK page, they were kind of promoting all their, like, you know, the pomp and circumstance of the military funerals they give out. And they've been busy lately. There were, like, eight or nine Wagner guys they buried over the last month. Did you just did you just go to the, the cemetery's social media pages and see if they're advertising anybody whose names have been linked to Wagner? This how guy, did you, well, how did you stumble onto that? That wasn't that hard. I mean, I just searched his name, right? Okay. And, like, so you search his name, and then a funeral home post pops up, and you're like, and it's like a semi-promotional... Kind of, yeah. So I just searched the guy's name plus uh, where he's from, and that's right. Really, that's really, and then I just like just scrolled a lot. Right, this story was not terribly complex, I and mean, we've done a lot of pretty terribly complex stuff, and this was not one of them. It was a lot of a lot of aggregation, right? And yeah, and it was this this kind of funeral service place outside of Saratov, and they were you know just saying like this is look how fancy this is, and look at the hearse that we have, and all that. And there was like nobody there. And a lot of times you look at these pictures of their funeral services, and it's just like. When like the quote unquote normal soldiers, you know, the non-Wagner guys, the guys who are like under the age of 35, because the Wagner guys you can kind of pick out, they're like guys and they're like old, these, you know, relative geezers, these guys in these 40s and 50s who are clearly they, they joined under non-normal circumstances, I guess right. you could say. But when you get like, you know, this 25 year old guy who is clearly like either a conscript or a contract soldier, you know, he's the coffin is surrounded by loved ones and all that. And this is yeah. no one, not a single person with this guys. As far as I could tell this wedding, maybe, maybe they're all. Do you have all... any sense of who paid for the funeral? 
I, I, I don't know for sure, but I assume it, part of it was handled by Wagner because there was kind of, this is a big selling point that Prigozhin had that's kind of been, I think Holid wrote about this, was very interesting. About, he said, you'll all get an Alley of Heroes barrow. Like you're going to be buried with honors and it, it'll, be, it'll be a big deal and you won't die, you know, cold and alone. So a strange factoid is I grew up in Chicago both on the south side and north side. Okay. And in the, in the 1970s, you know... Um, I gang- just watched the Blues Brothers again for, for no good reason, so I feel like I'm very in tune with what you're about to say. Well, you know, it's a tough town, Chicago. Uh-huh, um, yeah. It's a tough town. It's got a reputation for all kinds of gangster uh, life. Uh, I had a very early exposure to that uh, as a kid, just kind of atmospherically. But more importantly, I grew up in a culture, you know, kind of a mixed-race household. And... I grew up kind of straddling the line between different gangs that controlled parts of Chicago. And at that time, they were called folks and people. <laughs> that was kind of the dividing line. And if you wore your cap to the right, you're like, I think I'm getting this right. You're folks. And if you wear your cap to the left, you're, you're people. And that was kind of my first introduction to understanding that people who are lost and don't have much of a sort of social anchor like to form groups and they like to and, and typically when they form in gangs they need those signs and symbols outward right mm. um, to differentiate themselves from other others mm. right that's kind of part of the you know social cohesion is we wear blue they wear red right and for the Wagner group a lot of the signaling draws on this Spetsnaz military culture of old. So we're talking about, you know, the Vede Ve Blue Berets in the in the heyday when they would, you know, jump out of planes and do daring things uh, in the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan. It's no coincidence that that is part of the kind of symbology that is drawn on in the Wagner group. A lot of the commanders have served in Afghanistan. Certainly the first wave, right, were Afghansi. And quite a few of them, of course, went on to Chechnya and then to Abkhazia and South Ossetia, et cetera, et cetera. These are Russia's frozen conflict warriors. And that in itself is its own sort of social signaling. And you can look online. I mean, you can see all the different signs and symbols that are there. They're drawing very heavily on Spetsnaz, Bay, Bay, GRU symbols. And more importantly, many of them say that they are part of those units. <laughs> It is a social movement. It's not so much Wagner that's a social movement now. It's a little bit, you know, I think there's some conflation. I will say that. The backbone here is the Russian imperial movement. We know a lot more about how Prigozhin pays out salaries, for instance, to fighters. There's been a lot of leaks and defections. Uh, We know a lot more about the, the prisoner recruitment deal and what that says about Prigozhin's relationship with the FSB and, of course, law enforcement authorities and penitentiary authorities in Russia. So now it becomes a little bit more difficult to kind of hand wave and create a new brand. Although I think we're starting to see creeping signs of trying to contain the Wagner Group's story from the Kremlin, right? There's been sort of this, a lot of allusions to reorganizing, making sure that the Ministry of Defense has a little bit more control and Prigozhin has been told to stop the the prison recruitment drive and so forth and so on. You know very well, (laughs) of course, that when information is sort of leaked in a strategically timely way, there's always reasons to be skeptical about what the 
the other ulterior motives are behind that leak. How do you know when it's when it's strategically advantageous? Because it seems there's always somebody who's benefiting from a leak at some point. That's presumably other than just selling it. That's why someone leaked it. I assume, like you know, you, you, the guy profits from selling it, but then somebody promotes it because it's beneficial to their agenda somehow. So it's this is one of the problems I have with reading Telegram in general. And I do want to ask you about the the, the use of social media in your research because it's it features pretty large, at least in, in what you've released so far. You know, when reading these these channels. And you, you argue at one point that examining these channels more closely can give us insights into the operations, structure, funding mechanisms, and vulnerabilities of the volunteer and contract units. And my first thought was, is this like actually the assassination coordinates thing that Musk was so, you know, <laughs> up in arms about? Like, are we actually, is the benefit here that we can read their stuff and that they essentially give away too much? Or is it, is it, is that, yeah, you're nodding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we really hesitated. I debated a long time whether or not we should even release any of this stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just save um, it for the tribunal. Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I, I think that's you know because there is a debate about the tribunal. I felt you know it was important that people understand that evidence is available, and actually, in spades, right? There's just huge volumes of evidence available. Not just in the social media streams. It's extremely important, right? It does. It's very telling in a lot of ways. But when you start to kind of cross-reference that with things like company registries and you know shipments of goods, bills of lading, tail numbers on planes and ships that you know are going different places. I mean, this is just sort of classic open source investigation work. But when you start to when you have that much data, a lot of the meta data tells its own story. But you asked the question about sort of the timely, the timeliness of leaks and who benefits when and how do you know? You certainly don't know by simply paying attention to the message that's being delivered, right? I mean, it's not enough to mm-hmm. examine the content of a video of Yevgeny Prigozhin in a prison trying to recruit people. That's, that's just, it's not enough. You can't sort of just take at face value what's happening on, on screen on the camera. More and more, if you really want to understand the kind of information warfare component of the Wagner Group's operations, you really have to do the forensic work. So that means literally looking at the metadata of user accounts. So we gathered, oh gosh, in this most recent sweep, about 350,000, 355,000 Vacontactia user profiles that all were connected to Wagner Group branded channels, right? Some were Russian imperial movement, some were Rusich, some were straight up Wagner. What we noticed was there was this vector. And the more we looked at the social networks and literally use math, graph analysis, the more we could scissor down to a core group of commanders, field commanders. Now, I can't say where do they sit within the entire enterprise, but we identified in our first sweep 31 people who, with no question, fought in Donbass, no question, at some point or another, served in the Russian military, mostly in the special forces. And then we did another sweep more recently, and we found 53, same attribute, basically. I think with a little bit more digging, we will find, oh, yes, they also have an LLC that happens to have received a loan from a Prigozhin-related entity, right? That's a very typical way of managing the relationships within the Wagner Group network. And so the other things you have to do, you have to look at the signature, you have to look at the registration dates, 
for the websites. I mean, one of the strangest little factoids that jumped out at us was, gosh, almost a year before the Russian invasion began, we started to see Rusich, you know, signaling that they were potentially returning to Donbass. And it was all in these little coded, tiny little pieces of information, just comments on an Instagram post. But then we started to see, you know, oh, they're serious. You know, they're talking about car keys. And that's, you know, that was about September of 2021. You know, when these groups start talking online, it's, it's usually a pretty good sign that they're moving in a direction. For whatever reasons, certain parts of the Wagner group, certain field commanders, I guess, fuel a compunction to kind of advertise their military prowess. And despite, you know, the, the so-called uh, anti-selfie soldier law, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to have been very effective. It hasn't prohibited uh, these special operators from posting, you know, all manner of things online. So it's been very helpful. You know, the Wagner Group has been so prominent that it is very difficult to imagine a situation in which Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, or anybody else, right, in Kiev who is leader, saying, that's okay, you know, we'll give them a pass. And we're ready to to do a deal. The fate of the Wagner Group and its legal status must be decided for this war to end. At the end of the day, accountability, but also the closure of the conflict, depends on the ability to contain these types of paramilitary cartels. It's going to be really critical that we don't take our eye off the ball. You don't think that it'll just sort of disappear? when it's no longer needed as a publicity sort of shock trooper sort of thing. Prigozhin will just stop appearing in things so, so much. And I mean, where did uh, Yanukovych, like he's like somewhere in the forest or whatever, right? Like there's just like people that presumably were responsible for things that could put them in jail and we just sort of stop hearing from them. I mean, it seems like the, what you're touching on here in terms of what you were saying earlier about, you know, not reading at face value, the content that is released directly from Prigozhin or the Wagner kind of media empire. I find, I mean, like, it's so difficult. It's like, you can't, don't read it at face value, look at the metadata, and then draw conclusions. Like, it's very, it's very, I mean, this is why you're, why it takes so much work, obviously, but for anybody listening to this, you know, unless they're one of your colleagues, they're going to be like, well, what what do I do? Like, how do I do this? I guess we just stay tuned for your next report and, and others like it. Yes, that's right. Well, I hope so. <laughs> You've got a few more coming. Right. Listen, right. I think it's entirely possible that Yevgeny Prigozhin could disappear into the forest. We'll never hear from him again. It's also possible that he could be assassinated. I think that's a very high likelihood. There are lots of things that could happen to Yevgeny Prigozhin that would change the dispensation of how we think about the Wagner Group. What will not change is Russia's military technical agreements around the world in Venezuela, Central African Republic, Sudan, Syria, and its desire to shore up its strategic depth uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That won't change. Those are fundamentals. With those fundamentals comes a package. And frankly, right now, it's it's wrapped in the Wagner label, right? But the reality is these are special operators that are largely under the command of the Kremlin. The whole business about them being part of some sort of private enterprise, we know better. We know that this is essentially a state enterprise. And that serves, you know, the sovereign wealth fund uh, of Russia. So I think we can count on potentially new leadership. We might even see PMC Reddit, as an example, becoming talked about more often 
and, and kind of an attempt to kind of sublimate the Wagner Group narrative at some point. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's being sublimated is very telling. Right? It tells you that the Kremlin is extremely sensitive, not just to the potential for internal challenge from a political rival. No. They're much more worried that at the end of the day, they're going to have to bargain. Um, and narrative control has been at the heart of this entire psychological operation. Escalation risks are a real factor. We saw that in Syria in February of 2018 when U.S. forces clashed with so-called Russian mercenaries under the Wagner Group in Deir Ezzur. I think that that was, you know, people wonder, like, what happened there? Why, why didn't the Russian command do more to protect its own citizens? To teach Prigozhin a lesson. That's the takeaway, isn't it? Oh, no. See, now that's, I think that's, I actually think that that is where, again, sure, maybe Shoigu wanted to teach Yevgeny Prigozhin a lesson. Mm-hmm. But much more likely, a higher level conversation was, can we afford to say that these are our guys and have a situation where the United States, our you know, rival of 70 years, has decimated, we don't know, 50, hundreds, right? Has killed, let's say, several hundred of our citizens, and we had no response, right? Of course, I mean, if, if it was an open clash between Russian regular forces and American regular forces, there would be a public expectation on both sides of an escalation of force. This is much less about teaching Evgeny Prigozhin a lesson and much more about escalation control. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week. Mm-hmm.